Hello and welcome back to the podcast. This episode has been recorded on Monday the 16th of May at around 7 o'clock. Following on from my last episode with Sarah Andriotti, we had discussed the shark population trends off South Africa and Sarah's work as a marine biologist. Anybody visiting South Africa is advised to spend time in the wonderful city of Cape Town. And in this episode, I will talk about this great city as a focal point for many cultural activities and outdoor pursuits, while also talking about the nature and political history which makes Cape Town so special as a tourist destination for those that live there. South Africa is split into the Eastern Cape and Western Cape, for which Cape Town is situated on the Western Cape, taking in the Atlantic sea breezes and waves that crash along Table Bay, where Cape Town is situated. Cape Town is the parliamentary location of South Africa and is also the oldest city in South Africa. The city itself accounts for two-thirds of the population of the Western Cape. Cape Town was named as the best place to visit in the world by the New York Times and the Daily Telegraph in 2014. Cape Town is renowned for its harbour, mostly the Victorian Alfred Wharf and also Table Mountain. Staying on the waterside, the port of Cape Town is one of the busiest trading routes in South Africa, only second to Durban. The port in Cape Town also has repair and maintenance facilities for large fishing fleets. The port is widely used by cruise ships and has also hosted the Volvo Ocean races. Historically, the first harbour jetty was built in 1654 by the Dutch East India Company or VOC. However, during the winter months, Table Bay was susceptible to high winds which accounted for a lot of boat losses and the harbour area was often closed during the winter period. During this time, Table Bay port was closed. Ships would transport goods and dock at Simonstown in the False Bay area. In 1858, there was a huge storm which swept 30 ships out to sea, and there was a massive loss of life. Such that Lloyds of London, an insurance company, declined to insure ships in Table Bay for the winter period, which led the British colonial government constructing the first breakwater in 1860. This was called the Victorian Alfred Basin. Today, the Victorian Alfred Basin is one of the top tourist spots in Cape Town, with seafood restaurants and steakhouses along the wharf, rooftop bars and arcade shopping a prominent feature of the harbour. The harbour itself can be split into four docks. The Ben Schumann Dock, this is the largest outer dock of the port where the container terminal is situated. The Duncan Dock, this is the smaller and the older inner dock containing the multi-purpose and fruit terminals as well as a dry dock, repair key and tanker basin. Next is the yachting marina and then finally the Victorian Alfred basins. These were the main piers of the original Cape Town Harbour but now house the Victorian Alfred waterfront. The harbour area of Cape Town was used as a stop-off or supply port for Dutch ships transporting goods to East Africa, India and the Far East. 
The Western Cape's first human settlement was found in Fishhook, 12 to 15,000 years ago, but no written history exists around this time frame. The first European to reach the Cape was Bartholomew Diaz, who named it the Cape of Storms. This was renamed by uh, John II of Portugal as the Cape of Good Hope. In the 16th century, it was Portuguese, English, Danish and French ships who traded tobacco, copper and iron to the Indies, stopping over in Table Bay. Cape Town was colonised by the Dutch in 1652, but then colonised and taken over by the British Empire in 1795, before being briefly returned to the Dutch by treaty in 1803, but then occupied by the British again in 1806 following the Battle of Blauberg. The 1814 Anglo-Dutch Treaty permanently ceded Cape Town to the British. The British exported plant species from Australia to stabilise the sand of the Cape mudflats to allow a road to connect the peninsula to the rest of the African continent and in 1859 the first railway line was built which was expanded in the 1870s. The discovery of diamonds in the 1860s led to mass immigration to South Africa. Conflicts between the Boer Republicans and the British colloquial army led to the Second Boer War in 1899, which ended in 1902, which was won by the British. In 1948, the National Party won on a platform of apartheid, which was racial segregation. Under apartheid, the Cape was considered a coloured labour preference area. Apartheid was opposed by political prisoners, most noticeably Nelson Mandela, who was also held prisoner on Robben Island, amongst other political prisoners. Mandela's release coming in 1990, when he made a public speech from the balcony of the Cape Town City Hall, which marked the end of apartheid. Robben Island was declared by UNESCO as a World Heritage Site in 1999. I've visited Robben Island and I can tell you the timing is of the essence here, as the boats do rely on the sea conditions to take tourists out to the island. These are operated from the Nelson Mandela Gateway on the Victoria and Alfred Wharf. If lucky to get out to the island, do look out as you may spot southern right whales on the crossing over. Once there, there is a car guided tour of the island and one can go within the prison walls and check out the prisoners courtyard and cells. Leaving the ocean momentarily, the other main tourist attraction of Cape Town is Table Mountain, or in Afrikaans, Tafelberg. This mountain's name is derived from the flat top mountain forming a landmark overlooking the city of Cape Town. Access to Table Mountain National Park itself is mostly by bus, but upon arriving there you can elect to hike up to the peak or take a cable car. Access to the peak by cable car again does depend on weather, particularly the wind. Looking up at Table Mountain from the city, it is often characterised by the flat peak with a sheet of white cloud as southwesterly winds often hit the cooler air at the peak. 
It is estimated on average that the mountain attracts 4.2 million tourists annually. The mountain is home to 8,200 plant species, most of which is endemic. Table Mountain's peak is 3 kilometers wide from end to end. The peak is flanked by Devil's Peak to the east and Lion's Head to the west. If looking at the graphic or the picture from this episode, you'll notice that the peaks form like an amphitheater of the City Bowl and Table Bay. The picture being taken from Milnerton, a suburb at the northern end of Cape Town. A particular journey or day trip I highly recommend doing is Cape Point. Cape Point is situated 30 kilometers south of Cape Town and on the southeast end of the Cape, but just above the Cape of Good Hope. Cape Point is often forgotten or mistaken to be the southernmost tip of the African continent. But that title belongs to Cape Agulhas, which is 150 kilometers to the east-southeast. In the previous episode with Sarah, we had mentioned the Sardine Run, where the Agulhas current brings a channel of warm water corridors up the Indian Ocean for the sardines to run up to the east of South Africa in the KwaZulu-Natal region and beyond. A previous wonder of the world rivaling that of the African wildebeest migration. This typically occurs in the South African winter time of May to July. But coming back to the point at hand, which is Cape Point, the peak is higher than that of the Cape of Good Hope. Cape Point is comprised of sandstone, and there's two peaks. The higher peak has a lighthouse stationed there, with a smaller peak to the south, which can be accessed by footpath. The meeting of the Agulhas current and the Benguela current does not produce a bubbling visual effect, or lying in the water. However, this does lead to dangerous rip currents and many maritime disasters have occurred throughout the last few centuries. Moving northeast, you'll come back to False Bay and Simonstown, home to some nice restaurants, but more remarkably, the great white shark population who hunt the Cape fur seals here. Unfortunately, as discussed, the great white shark population is on the decline here. In False Bay, you can find Simonstown, which is home to South Africa's largest naval base. The town is protected by breakwaters, comprised of thousands of blocks of sandstone, which is quarried from the mountain above. Simonstown is also the terminus to the southern railway line that can be reached here from Cape Town's central business district. Heading south of Simonstown, you will come across Boulders Beach, which weaves in and out of granite more renowned home of the African penguins here since 1985. These penguins can only be found elsewhere in Hermanas and Bettystown in South Africa. Sorry, Betty's Bay, I should say. Uh, there's a Martello Tower constructed in Simonstown uh, in the late 1700s to ward off possible attacks from Dutch and French invasion. Such Martello Towers are a key feature of the British Empire in the countries in which they had invaded. Closer to home, these could be seen particularly dotted along the Dublin Bay coastline. Also in Simonstown is the Naval Maritime Museum. Heading back in the Cape Town direction, one will travel through the affluent Camps Bay. This seaside town and bay is nestled amongst breathtaking coastal cliff-top drives 
home to mansions of actors such as Leonardo DiCaprio, excellent fish restaurants, namely The Codfather, and a nice beach and promenade. Camps Bay is one of the very few areas where I got in for a cool dip in the sea. A very refreshing one at that. Another place of interest in the Cape Town region is Stellenbosch. This town is situated 50 kilometers east of Cape Town, at the foot of the Stellenbosch mountain, and characterized by oak trees. In winter time, there can be a sheet of snow seen on the mountaintop here. The town is home to Stellenbosch University, the oldest university in South Africa, and where Sarah completed her PhD research in marine biology, working with local operators not so far away in Hansby. Stellenbosch is home to dozens of wineries and one can take a half day or even full day wine uh, tasting trip here. Some of these wineries have special attractions within them, whether they be self-cleansed wineries with ducks or big bird or big cat sanctuaries. The wineries also produce some of the best cheese and chocolate you can taste in South Africa. If going to Cape Town, I would recommend going anywhere between December and February, if heat is your thing, when the South African summer is taking place. Cape Town's climate is often likened to that of the Mediterranean. However, uh, after spending the early summer in South Africa, in Cape Town, I can only liken it to Lanzarote in the Canary Islands, where you'd enjoy uh, some very pleasant warm weather in the 30s mixed in with some gusts of wind to help cool you down do bring a fleece in the evening time when the sun goes down as it can get quite cool here and that wind gets colder so that's it for this episode of the podcast Um, I do endeavour to cover more South Africa in the coming episodes I do also endeavour to talk to some more interesting people about their uh, life experience and their outdoor pursuits uh, if I can make the suggestion though um, I, I do hope to engage more with the audience and uh, you know, ask, ask questions and this will be more in the form of any ideas uh, for upcoming episodes of the podcast whether that be places of interest or uh, any guests that you'd like to hear from you know, about their outdoor pursuits so uh, please do engage um, I will do my best or I will endeavour to, uh, to do that for you if I get any suggestions but uh, it's good to be back and uh, we have summer coming around the corner um, the weather is uh, set to disimprove now over the next few days but I, I think we're going to get some nice weather in store for the weekend ahead so fingers crossed but uh, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the First Poor Podcast and um, looking forward to making some new episodes. So until then, Slán August Banacht. <laughs>